Stop fishing in the sludge. There's a lot more healthy fish where people don't go as often. And while some investors care too much about the investor's signals and might see particular markets as small ponds, Claire Diaz-Ortiz uses that as an advantage by searching for overlooked big opportunities. Claire is a VC, angel investor, author, and speaker who was an early employee at Twitter. Named one of the 100 most creative people in business by Fast Company and called the woman who got the Pope on Twitter by Wired, she joined Magma Partners in 2020 as an investing partner in Latin America. There, she runs Brava, the first initiative of its kind to invest in female founders across the region. In this episode, we talk about her journey at Twitter until she became a VC, the dynamics of leverage and signaling, ideas to shockwave change towards investments in underrepresented founders, and tips to get the right investor's attention. So come on in, the water's warm. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Hey, Claire, this is fun. Good to have you on the podcast. I guess you're in Buenos Aires, right? I am in Buenos Aires, and you were in your closet, yes. I'm in my closet. (laughs) That's your your latitude uh, is in Buenos Aires. Well, listen, the first question I have, I guess we got to know each other through Julie Ruvalo. She connected us. I was like, who are the badass women that I should be talking to that are in tech and interested in LATAM? And you're the first person that came to mind. So you went to school with Julie at Stanford, and Julie and I have been friends for a, a long time now. And so that's how we connected, which it's been great to get to know you a little bit better. And I want to ask you some questions, some questions that I want to know, and I'm sure other people will want to know as well. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. First thing I wanted to ask you is tell me what led you to become Twitter's pontiff recruitment chief at Twitter. So, uh, so basically back in the days when I knew Julie, we were undergrads and then grad students in anthropology. And then after that period of my life, we were at Stanford together. I became, as my father calls, a wandering delinquent. And I spent about five years sort of randomly doing stuff in random corners of the world. I had this amazing but awful online editing job that paid for me to live and made it cheaper for me to live in random places than in San Francisco. And so I basically just kind of did that. Um, It kind of confirmed my love for Latin America. I kept coming back to LATAM. I ended up starting a small nonprofit out in East Africa and sort of along the way, um, the way I was able to kind of do the weird stuff I was doing and particularly when the nonprofit got started, the way I was able to kind of raise funds was because I had this blog that became popular. And back in 2006, if you had a blog, it was probably on blogger.com, right? It had that like blogspot ending. And so when Blogger, they found it, when we were, my best friend and I were trekking up to the base camp of Mount Everest for two weeks, that's when they found it. And that's when they started driving a ton of traffic to it, right? And so it just like kind of exploded the blog um, and it really helped us. We didn't have any actual business aims with it, but it was great to see all these like, people logging in. Um, and so about six months after that, they tried this little experiment, which was Twitter, which was sort of a two-week side project they did to kind of see what it would be like. And shortly after that, they asked us to just like come on as early users. And we did. And I quickly built up a following kind of talking about tweeting, stuff for good, social impact, nonprofits out in Kenya. And that eventually led to, I had a sort of a detour in business school for a year and then ended up working at Twitter. Um, I joined when there were about 50 people there. Uh, My first few months, I was an MBA intern. So I was just kind of interning. We were looking at sort of how Twitter could be used as a (laughs) 
positive force for good in the world. That was my initial mandate because Biz Stone, one of the co-founders of Twitter, was really passionate about that idea. I obviously say that with like, saying that today is very strange because of everything that has happened with social media in the last 12 years. But at the time it was, it was really cool and new. And, you know, I wrote this book called Twitter for good, change the world one tweet at a time, which was like the first book looking at Twitter. And it was, you know, talking about how wonderful social media would be for all of us to help make a more equitable world. Right. Um, We saw the Arab spring. We thought, wow, this is great. We saw what social media could do in natural disasters and the Haiti earthquake and the tsunami in Japan. And we just basically had no idea what was going to happen next. We had no idea where we'd be 10 years later and what we'd think of social media. But along that journey, one of my jobs at Twitter was basically to get famous people on the platform. We had a theory of growth then, which was sort of influencer marketing. I don't think we called it influencer marketing yet, but the concept was obviously the same. It was... um, I just heard you use this phrase the other day and I always forget it though. It's all boats. No, rising tide rises all boats. Lifts all boats. Yeah. Okay. So that was the concept. So the idea was you would go into any given demographic. So let's say the country of Columbia or sports as a general thing. And you'd find the most famous or most influential sort of like node super connector in that area and you get them on the platform. You wouldn't pay them. You'd get them on for free. And then they would become a great tweeter and then everyone else would join. And so we started doing that in a bunch of basically, you know, niches. And one of the niches that we started doing it with was religion. So that led to basically a year-long project with the Vatican to onboard onboard the Pope. It was wild, um, but it was a really, really interesting experience. I spent about a year working with them to do it. And I think the thing that was most interesting to me yeah, overwhelmingly, the thing that was most interesting to me was that the team at the time at the Vatican was actually much more agile than the team at Twitter at the time. I think at this point, Twitter already had at least a thousand employees and was facing a lot of growing pains that happens when a company goes from really small and nimble to sort of big and has no idea what to do. And so it was pretty amazing how I really felt throughout that whole process. The Vatican was able to move significantly quicker than basically Twitter was. So you said it took a year though. Yeah, because there were, you know, some fits and some starts and we had a planned June event in St. Peter's Square that had to be canceled and there's all kinds of stuff. It was, the whole concept initially was kind of crazy um, and it had come from this data team at Twitter who had been doing just kind of general research into what tweets were really resonating. And they came across something that they thought was an anomaly at the time, which was basically that Bible verses were getting a lot of engagement, right? So they were getting like a lot of, um, you get a lot of retweets despite having really few followers, like punching way above their weight, right? And so the more they dug into this, they said, wow, religion is really doing well. We found out it was basically one of the most engaged of, of all the kind of Uh, verticals at that point. So that was where it came from. But I mean, the Vatican was always really interested and forward thinking. And, you know, I think for them, I remember the day because we, when the Pope tweeted for the first time, he tweeted on an iPad and you can find the video on YouTube. And it's kind of sad because it's like, he's fumbling and doesn't really know where the button is. Um, I'm staying next to him with a ponytail. My mom's always like, why'd you wear a ponytail when you met the Pope? Um, (laughs) That night we went out with the, went out, but you know, we went to a nice pizza dinner (laughs) in Rome with some of the, the key people on the communications team that were doing it. 
And we were talking about how it had been received. And very quickly, it it was clear that it had been received really well. No one that famous had ever joined Twitter or really any social media platform at that point. Since then, well, I don't know. Who else is more famous since then? Maybe there have been other people. I don't know. But that, the that was the pretty big one. The Pope is pretty big. It's, okay. So we, we had launched in, you know, eight languages that day. It was a big deal. He, you know, immediately gotten, you know, the most number of followers on any social media platform in the shortest time in that amount of time or whatever. But there were obviously critics. And I remember speaking to um, one of his, basically his, his head PR guy at the time, this awesome guy, Greg Burke. And, you know, I was saying, Greg, like, how do you kind of think about the critics? You know, the critics who say that the Pope of all people should not be on, you know, freaking Twitter, right? And he really said that that was something that they had really thought through months and months before, because quite honestly, the Pope going on Twitter in 2012, I think it was, maybe it was 2011, was pretty analogous to the Pope starting Vatican Radio back in the 50s, whenever it did, right? And the same feedback that they had gotten about, you know, the Pope, hearing the voice of the Pope in your ears through your radio, right? It was the same thing. It was just a different version of that. So I think they, I mean, yeah, I've always just given them so much credit for being able to kind of see that vision from the beginning. And yeah, they took me on a great ride. It was really fun. What are are some of the things you learned as an early employee there that you maybe now apply as an investor? What are some of the lessons? Um, So I think the big thing is, I think there's really interesting, I think there's a very interesting tension about being an early employee or a founder at a startup, right? Because I think it's really important to know your worth and to figure out what are, what is, you know, the one most important thing you need to be focusing on and to figure out what your North Star is. But then at the same time, to be able to literally get in the, you know, dirty weeds of you cleaning out the garbage or the kitchen or, you know, in the case of Twitter, when I joined, there was this big joke because when I joined, there were like two bathrooms and only one for women and there were like no women at the company. And so the men would just always use the one, they would like single stalls. So one men's stall and one women's stall. And the men would just always use the women's stall. And it was like, you know, disgusting, obviously. I feel like there's an element of that in startups that I see all the time with my founders of it's a very hard push and pull of knowing when it's time to be firm and, you know, negotiate and, you know, (laughs) go for the higher valuation. And when it's time to, yeah, stay up at at 4am trying to learn how to code one stupid line on the website so that, you know, the email newsletter doesn't show up wrong or whatever. And I think that's a very, very challenging tension. And I think oftentimes you see founders in both directions getting it wrong, right? So the classic thing would be, you know, a lot of investors don't like second time founders because they think they come kind of too privileged, you know, not as gritty, not as like eager or hungry, right? And, and that comes from that idea, right? That maybe a second time founder knows they're worth so much that they, they don't really want to be cleaning the bathroom, say. Uh, but then on the other side of things, you have, you know, first time founders, particularly underestimated founders, who are sometimes just completely not understanding their worth and their value and kind of look to investors like, please give me this handout. Right. And and that's not, that's not right. Like you're a founder, you have a business, you are offering an opportunity to this investor and you want to make it look that way. Yeah. And there's a psychology of that too, right? Like when an investor is like talking to a founder and they're like, please invest. It's funny how it kind of changes the dynamic, right? I mean, it's, Wildly different. It's interesting because I was just talking. Um, so we see this a lot. So I, I've been an angel for a few years now. I left Twitter about seven years ago. And then I joined Magma a year ago as a VC. 
but I still like doing angel investments. And one of the ways that we, that I really like doing angel investments is with other female VCs. And one of the reasons for this, we have a small group, we call it the Angel Collective, and we just um, invest across borders. So like in different geographies. But I think one of the huge things that makes it work is that we often will see a really good female founder. And this happens with any sort of underestimated founder who really has a good business, but maybe there's something weird about the round or something weird about the person's background, or maybe God forbid she's pregnant or whatever. And it's really hard for her to drum up that initial excitement. And it's honestly like, it's such a game fundraising and it's so much, you know, there's so much strategy that goes into it that like, as soon as you have one solid person kind of behind you, then you can start the wheel rolling. But I feel like for underestimated founders, it's much, much harder for them to find that first foot in. So it's been interesting to angel invest within a group over the last year to see how that can really help and move the needle. And so one of those founders that you and I have often talked about is, is Emma at Heffa. We're invested in Heffa at Magma and you're invested in Emma as, a, as an angel. And she was one of those founders that sort of came to me with I'll say like hair on the round initially. And I didn't really, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you, you brought that, you brought that deal to me. That was really cool. I, I really liked Emma right from the first time I talked to her. I was like, okay, this person has something amazing. She's got this energy about her. I will say though, that I, I did slide the check in a little bit before you, even though you're the one that found the deal. I just wanted to let All you right. know. Well, that's because funds are so slow. That's the thing. It's best to be an angel in this world because you're going to be so freaking agile, right? Emma's story is just so interesting because she's this founder who, like, I saw on stage at Slush, which is this big startup conference in Finland. And I saw her on stage for a different company five months before she came to pitch at Magma, right? So obviously that's a red flag to any investor. Like what is going on? She had a company that is fintech that is raising in a different geography in Africa at the time. And she came to us and I didn't understand the story uh, because, you know, she understandably did not want to tell me the story at first until she had built some trust. Then once I did learn it after first rejecting her, and basically the story is, you know, she was a female founder with horrible equity and basically had no choice but to leave, Mm -hmm. uh, which happens all the time. But because of that, it was really hard in the beginning. So the first thing I did was like talk to people that I knew could sort of trust me about getting in on the deal because I could tell them what the de- what the actual story was because she didn't want to be public with it, which makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's tough because like you're, and that happens with a, it's a lot of founders, particularly ones that are more inexperienced initially, and the cap table problem is something that I think media have seen multiple times where it's like okay. How can we help? I just recently helped a founder, you know, renegotiate their their cap table because it was uninvestable, and then they're closing a Series A right now because they were able to kind of. And it's it's smart because talk to those early investors, and obviously, good angel investors understand this. They don't. If your experience as an angel operator, you know that you you can't have a outsized amount of equity because that's just going to put the company in a bad position. But uh, it's it's challenging, and I want to hear more about the genesis of you starting to invest, like. As an angel, how did that all start? Sure. So I left Twitter right before, or no, right after I had my first kid, and we were we had moved back to Argentina full time, and I was sort of taking some time off and really trying to figure out what to do next. I had started writing books, and so I was kind of every two years publishing some sort of book, usually about something in like business, marketing, leadership, some random thing I would think of. I don't know. So I was liking that, but I was kind of knowing that I wanted a second half to my career after being in tech, but I I didn't really think I was a very good operator, honestly. 
I didn't really feel like that was my personality. I'm pretty autonomous. I also like to spend a lot of time like by myself focusing on an idea and most of the sort of anything related to sort of marketing and communications in the operating world doesn't really include that sort of time. So I, I didn't know what I was doing, but in 2016, I took a course to learn about angel investing for female funders. And that was kind of the thing that sort of made me first kind of really interested. Uh, I made my first investment at the end of that course. I then had some issues. I had preemie twins, a whole like lost a whole year and a half of my life to that, but then got back at it and, you know, just sort of slowly started angel investing. I mean, all my angel investments initially were all up in California, all up in Silicon Valley. And so for me, kind of when I realized, hey, I think I want to do this VC thing, it was a big shift for me to start learning LATAM, which was the place I had been living, but not the place I had been working. I mean, I remember very clearly, it was probably about three years ago now, that I was on Twitter actually scrolling and I saw one of my ex-colleagues had just been, one of my former colleagues at Twitter had just been announced as partner at some fund. And I remember seeing the tweet and like literally sitting up, I was in bed because you're always in bed when you're scrolling Twitter, right? And I literally sat up and I was like, why have I never thought of that? Because truly I had not until that point. Until that point, I was consulting, doing some angel investing, writing. But I think I just, I mean... Brian, did you take an AP test in high school in the U.S.? It wasn't as smart as you. Okay. (laughs) Let me tell you this. I I have a massive issue with math. So senior year, I take Calculus BC AP, which is like an advanced class, right? I somehow pass it, but then they give me the AP test, which is, I don't even, do those even exist anymore? I don't know. The AP is scored on a scale of one to five. I got a one which is what you get for writing in your name, right? So, and that was the last math class, math class I ever took. And I was like, felt shamed by it, I'm sure. And so I think for me, like the idea of being a full-time investor was really tied up in some issues with math, quite honestly. And then I realized it actually wasn't about math. Well, yeah, well, you know, it is definitely isn't about math. I mean, you're able to calculate the returns. That's the math you need, which fortunately I, I got through that in high school. But it's interesting you mentioned that because like, you know, the same kind of like insecurities I think that operators have, like as a founder, I didn't even know what the the term, like until I heard the term imposter syndrome, I didn't actually realize I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's, that's, that's what I, that's what I have. And so, you know, I think that those are things that you obviously with more experience get to know. And now that you're an investor, how has it been just a quick kind of, you mentioned magma. Tell us about the creation of Brava. Sure. So Magma is a pre-seed and seed stage fund in LATAM and its third fund started by Nathan and Cool investing in fun stuff. A lot of it is fintech and Brava is our initiative to invest in female founders. So we're trying to invest in 20 female founders. And I just say trying, not like it's hard. There's absolutely no pipeline program, pipeline problem. Um, we launched, I guess, officially maybe eight months ago or 10 months ago. It's hard to remember. But we've invested in 11 women so far. And so another nine to go in this. But I mean, I think for me, I think there's a big... There's a very large, complicated discussion around... Um, the importance of funding underestimated people in venture. And pretty much the only thing that's important to realize for investors is that funding women and funding people of color is absolutely the best thing to do for your bottom line. It's not some social impact thing, right? There's now like dozens of studies 
that tell you the stats. Um, and the stats are, you know, there's no stats showing the other direction, right? There's no stat that has showed us that actually investing in white men is better when you compare it on a dollar <laughs> per dollar basis. So there's a lot of good reason to invest in underestimated founders, but it's really, really hard for those people still to get investment. And pretty much the main kind of um, reason for that is, is just that we don't have a diverse body of investors making those investments. I mean, we all come to life with biases. You know, you don't have, if you don't have a bank brain, you don't have bias. That's a saying from one of the, um, Latasha Morrison, she's an activist and author. And I mean, I think we've, we've all sort of seen that and started to learn that more in 2020 than ever, but it's really true when it comes to investors. I mean, so in LATAM, as an example, you've got 92% of investing partners in LATAM are men, 8% are women, right? A woman is up to three times more likely to invest in a female founder. Um, so again, it's just about having different people on the investing committee so that founders with good ideas who are strong founders can find that right connection and that right fit with an investor. And it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's not rocket science. It's just having people from different backgrounds um, doing the investing because you're going to get more interesting deals. Um, and I mean, it's really particularly important at this point because we're now how many years into the ecosystem in Latin America and many, many more years into the VC ecosystem in the US. And so what you're seeing is that if you really want to get outsized returns, you've got to start investing in things that other people haven't invested in, right? Because otherwise we're just um, fishing in the sludge. So we have to stop fishing in the sludge, Brian. I'm, I'm with you on that. I've been fortunate enough to do a handful of deals with you and I think we subscribe to the same kind of belief. How does that compare, you know, Latin America? So 8% or 92% of the VCs or the, you know, with check writing ability in Latin America, well, I guess 8% are women. What, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the national average in, you know, in the U.S., for example? Is, is there a I lot? I think the U.S. this year was up at 14. It went from 13 to 14. In Europe, it's around 11. So, okay. I mean, it's bad everywhere, but it's a lot worse. I mean, worse and it's bad everywhere. Um, what are some ideas to have a shockwave that results in a, a more dramatic change? Like, what are some things? I mean, I think it's great that there's incremental improvements. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some ways that this can be? What would be something that would happen? Let's just brainstorm together that would result in a dramatic kind of leveling up of that. Well, I mean, the big thing would be having more female partner large firms. So basically, about five years ago, we saw the shift to having more women, people of color start become emerging, uh, emerging fund managers, right? And you have some great increase in that. I don't know the numbers over the last five years, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's totally doing a lot for the ecosystem. The problem is, you know, the combined assets of all those funds pale in comparison to even one of the big guys, right? So it's like, you got Sequoia adding there two years ago. We just need big funds to add more women on the cap table, add more people, sorry, add more women to the investor committee um, and add more people of color just to, you know, make it a more diverse, more interesting, more fruitful conversation so that, you know, these funds can over time make even better investment decisions. I mean, it's, it'll happen, but I mean, at the pace it's going, it's going to be a really slow slog. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like it, it's great that there's more fund managers that are have more more diverse backgrounds, but it's it's about the dollars too, right? Like, I mean, if you, if you have a high volume of people that are writing checks, which is great, don't get me wrong, maybe the impact will be greater on the 
pre-seed. Hopefully those you know, dollars going in are like really early stage dollars like you, right? You're, you're writing checks. I mean, when we invested in Emma, she didn't even have like really much of a product, right? It was, right. it was you know, she had a, a list of women that were, you know, beta testers or, or yeah. you know, signed up. And so I think that that's, I guess that's the way to have the most immediate impact is, is go really early, a higher volume of, of diverse founders. And then, then there'll just be more companies that can be funded later. I wonder if there's someone out there, I feel like there's someone out there who has a bunch of capital and mm-hmm. is moved to kind of make this. So this is a little bit of a, a call into the universe here um, where, you know, you never know how these things happen or someone should just, they should really just dump a bunch of money into like female operators, people of color that can really invest in, you know, have a, one, they have a, a, probably a better eye, a more, more in sync. I mean, the reality is that as a man, I just don't have the perspective a lot of times of speaking about the specifically about women, you know, the next billion dollar markets that are created by female founders probably would, I might miss that, you know, a good chance I'll miss that. And so that's one thing that, so if anyone's listening and they have like a lot of money and they want to turn that into more money, they should be giving it to you and others that are the building the next generation of investors in the region. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a good, sorry, I will cut in and say there's one good model that is uh, what the Atomico Angel program has done. So one of my friends, Sophia Bentz, she's a partner at Cherry Ventures now, but she was at Atomico and she was, I think like the eighth employee at Spotify. She built all their marketing. And so my next book is with her and it's about female founders and funders and it's not at all done yet. But she did a great job of basically turning Atomico into a kind of pre-seed machine by giving operator angel checks to diverse angel angel check writing ability to operator angels who were you know women and people of color at some of the top high growth companies around Europe and it worked really well and so I think I mean I think you're a big fan of like operator angels also but I I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. No, I, I love that and my I will say a little shout out to Sasha who was my CFO. She joined Atomico recently as a partner there. Oh, oh I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Should probably connect with her. Um, she's a total badass. She basically uh, was majorly responsible for us raising our Series C because she came in and, unlike me and you, she she was actually you know really good at math. So uh, <laughs> she, she was kind of a, a wizard on Excel and other things. So yeah, you might want to connect with her. She she's pretty awesome. But I 100 percent agree with you. The angel operator model, and you know, that's something that I think can really really plant the right seeds uh, moving forward. So what's the best way to pitch you? Probably on Twitter. Honestly, I, I, so at the end of every year, I do sort of a, you know, a rehash of what happened last year, what's happening in the next year, right? Yeah. And I made a, step, a couple sort of like clear rules for investing for 2021, where I just sort of went through, okay, what worked in 2020? And what do I want to do more of? Like, what do I want to lean into? And, you know, there were a couple sort of names on the list where it was sort of like when someone, when this person sends you a deal, like think really hard about doing it. Right. And that was like, okay, those are kind of my, a few of my trusted sources I want to really lean into. Right. But then I really realized as I was thinking through things that for me, obviously I like cold pitches or I'm open to cold pitches, certainly. But I find that when they come from Twitter, it often means that the person knows something about my interests and investing background to actually make it a pretty worthwhile pitch. And I was thinking about how many, pitch, how many checks I've written on Twitter this year. It's kind of interesting. Really kind of insightful comment. I think that's, that's very applicable 
And I think that like one thing that, you know, I remember having a, a conversation back in the day with a handful of VCs in Brazil that, that I got to know. And I was like, I think all of you should become media companies and like have your own and communicate directly. Because the reality is that one thing that we see, and we see this with like more elite VCs that have been around for a long time, it's like the double opt-in. And it's like this, like, you got this like walled garden of that is so hard to access. And so I think there's two points that you make, which are really interesting. One, be surprised what happens, you know, that, that comes in your inbox sometimes. And actually, you know, is interesting, particularly when someone actually has like done the research and knows about you and knows what you like. Cause, yeah. and, and so it's important for you to be manifesting that, you know, out yeah. there in the public because it'll, it kind of does your filtering for you. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and it also, you know, you, you have to be persistent. So I'm thinking of an angel check I'm writing right now into a founder who, um, is pretty well known, has a pretty big social platform, and I think had to write me maybe five times for me to actually reply just because it felt like a cold pitch and I had 50 others to go through that day or you know that week or whatever it was. And I was, I think, I mean, I, I would actually like, like to write an article about what she did because it was so effective. It was such personalized persistence and it was very just targeted. So like knowing me, knowing what I like to invest in and making it really easy for me to say yes. Um, and you know, if you're looking for angels, especially that's, you're just trying to make it easy for them to say yes. You know, it's a different thing when we're talking about funds, it's a completely different level of due diligence, but, um, in terms of, you know, a great place to find angel investors who can kind of support you, ask you some hard questions, but do a lot of hyping. I think Twitter and maybe clubhouse would be great places to start for founders. I totally agree. And, and, uh, I learned this the hard way, right? Cause when I was a founder, I was just this like kind of slightly desperate email LinkedIn bombing everyone. And, you know, of course, like my conversion was zero, right? Like it actually wasn't zero. I ended up getting my first kind of professional check from someone I connect with on Facebook. But incidentally, I wrote a very custom message to them, right? So it just goes to show that, you know, giving the thought makes a lot of sense and putting the effort in. And it's interesting too, because, you know, one of the things I've looked at this year is a number of those deals with those sort of matching programs, right? Where the the SaaS company that matches the founders raise with the investor that's in the database. And so I've done some digging into that and it is very complicated. What's the thing that just gets you when you get a message from a founder as an angel, where you're just like, oh gosh, I, I like I'm what is the 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 hot button there that's like, oh I, I need to this is interesting to me. What are the things that in terms of what they say or in terms of the space? I mean, in terms of what they say for me, and this is what I always tell my founders when they're raising from angels or from VCs, is like, you need to look up that person before that meeting very, very thoroughly. Um, and it drives me nuts when founders don't do that because it's like such an incredible missed opportunity. If you know you have a pitch meeting with someone, that's like having a job interview, right? So you look them up on LinkedIn, you see who you have in common, and you do a deep dive on that person. You know, Study them. It's a mini research project. And then have a couple points that you bring into that pitch meeting because fundraising is all about social proof and it's all about psychology. And like, again you want to make it easier for the investor not to have to say no since they have to say no all day and all night. Right. Totally. And it's funny because there's sometimes you look at this and you're like, Oh, the rational brain versus the kind of the emotional brain and people, if you come from a highly rational standpoint of like, okay, but this is the sector. And if you don't like, let's face it, investors also like to invest in people they like too. Right. Like, you know I mean? It's particularly if you're an institutional investor, you're going to be joining the board of this founder 
like you, you kind of want to like vibe with the founder too. So yeah. another proof point of what you said of kind of making sure that you, you know, and you don't want to obviously fake anything, but you want to, you want to understand what they're, what they care about and what they've done recently. And those are all things that will just make you closer to them. I mean, if a VC is investing in you, especially as a lead, they're going to hopefully be around for the next 10 years. So they want to be able to get along with you and offer value and connect with you on things, right? And again, this gets back to why it's important to have VCs of different backgrounds, because that's the only way we're going to get interesting, different companies. One question I have for you is that, you know, you write a lot about... So first of all, how many books have you written? I've published nine books, but I don't talk about the first book because it was a book about dating. <laughs> Okay, well, fair enough. You've you've done eight <laughs> books uh, plus, plus the other one, and first of all, that's insane. Like, I just finished my first book, and uh, I think it probably you know lost a few years of my life here. Uh, no, <laughs> but uh, but it, it, it's hard, right? And it's hard. So you you obviously are a prolific writer. What are some? You talk a lot about you know so many people about purpose, and you know what do you recommend founders ask themselves to connect their purpose to their business? And communicate it well? I think that it's really important to understand where you stand in the story of your business. And I think one of the critiques that maybe maybe founders know this, maybe they don't know, that VCs often have about founders is, you know, when they hear a pitch, they'll say, huh, if it sounds like the founder is just sort of taking opportunity, taking advantage of an opportunity in a market, but isn't personally invested in it, they pretty much don't want to invest. And I think that founders underestimate the reality of this, especially when you're in a market like LATAM where it's even harder. Founder is going to need an incredible amount of resilience to get to the place he needs to go. And it's very hard as an investor to believe that that resilience and that stick to and that grit is going to come out if there's not some personal connection to the problem. So I think that you know one of the most important things, especially at early stage, is for the founder to find their personal connection to, to their passion and the personal connection to the story and to bring that in. I mean, the earlier you go, the less you have to show anyway. So <laughs> it'd be really good to show how your story connects with that. I mean, I, I think you would agree, but certainly it precedes. You're basically just investing in the person anyway, right? So I would love a good story of how they have overcome some shit. Yeah. yeah. And let's face it, that whole storytelling piece, if it's hard for to get you excited about it as like a pre-seed investor, how are you going to get your first team members to join? How are you? And so th th those are all like highly correlated with being able to, to communicate well and get people motivated and, and rally around what, whatever it is you're doing. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's very... It's interesting because sometimes VCs will complain about a founder being too salesy, which I understand can happen. Um, and I understand that that's a, that's a critique and you know that, that's a valid feeling. But I need my founders to be able to sell. It's fundamental. They yeah. need to sell their company all day to the people they're hiring, to the people they're selling stuff to, to their investors, to the random people on Clubhouse, et cetera. I've got two more questions for you. So first of all, what is your purpose and goals for the next few years? I think I would like to invest in some underestimated founders in really big markets in Latam. <laughs> sounds like a good, like a good I feel job. like that's, that's my jam. That is your jam. That is your jam and you're doing it well so far. Um, last thing I want to ask you, 
given that you're an author, what's a book recommendation that you can drop here for, for me and others? So one of the books I always recommend, and I haven't read it in a few years, um, but I really love it, is called Essentialism by Greg McEwen. And maybe it's like six or seven years old now, but basically it's all about kind of gritting, grilling down or dry, whatever the word is, getting, getting down to what is kind of most essential in your life right now, or you could do it about your business and then trying to kind of follow that thread to figure out really what the best next right thing is. Um, I mean, this is a massive problem that founders have. It's a massive problem anyone has, but with founders, there are so many things you could do in so many different regions of the world sometimes with your one great product and you need to niche down. You need to come up with, you know, a, a workable plan and then cut that in half probably to execute. Well, one of my mentors used to say uh, to me, because as I was starting out early days, there's, there is so many things you could do. It's exciting. There's opportunities everywhere you look. And he, he told me, he said, hey, Brian, entrepreneurs, they love to chase the bright and shiny lights. And he's like, but you got to have your head down and you got to execute. Uh, otherwise, you know, you're not going to do what you want. And I think that was good advice. And obviously, you need to find product market fit. So if you haven't found product market fit, it's okay to look around because you need to find what it is that you're going to be able to figure out. But assuming that you found that, it's easy to get lost in all of the, the different opportunities. And so focus is super important. All right. Well, listen, that was super fun. Uh, enjoyed the chat. And chat. Go get out of your closet now. I will. I will. And uh, I think I have your address because I sent you my mom's book last time. I need to you know, get my book over to you as well so I can... No, I'll buy it. I like supporting authors. I'll buy okay. it. Good, good. Well, I'll, I'll take it like a good entrepreneur. Cool. If, if, awesome. If you, if you awesome. I just, I just hope you, you'll give me a nice uh, review because you've got, oh, some, you've got yeah. some credibility behind at it. Least, at least two and a half stars on Amazon, Brian. Okay, two and a half. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for your uh, time. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Claire Diaz-Ortiz from Magma Partners. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out book.latitude.com to get your copy of my book, Viva the Entrepreneur, founding, scaling, and raising venture capital in Latin America. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.